Sometimes it feels hard to be inside, doesn't it? Hard to be indoors. I've been scheming about how we can create an outdoor thing here, but it's a large group, so it's logistically challenging. And it will get dark. But we'll see. So we've been here a couple of days. Seems like a long time to me. Seems way more than two days. I don't know how it feels to you. Is it really two days? It is two days. (laughs) Does it feel like two days or does it feel like a long time? I don't know. Yeah, I think um, when we get present, time slows down a little. And I think when we're outdoors, we're more present, so time is <coughs> in some ways enriched or slower. Or there's, some, uh, <coughs> there's a multifaceted mm, dimension of our experience <coughs> which feels full. I certainly feel very full from being here in this land for these last two days. And in terms of the retreat, this um, can take some time, some settling to, to, there's different levels of arriving. Our bodies are here. But our mind, our attention, uh, presence, uh, focus, that's not necessarily quite going at the same speed. So I know from hearing from you in groups that there's a lot more going on than just frolicking in the meadows with the daisies. And there's some frolicking in the meadows in the daisies too, but um, there's a lot. Something, and as, as beautiful as, as it is here, not necessarily so easy to be here. There's a the form of the retreat and the silence and the meditations and, and all of that. Right? It's a it's a pressure cooker, right? and there's a there's a relative absence of distractions. Right? We usually we have a lot of things at hand to get pretty distracted. All the gadgets and devices and toys and shiny objects and all kinds of fun stuff. Right? The the moment we feel the slightest bit of discomfort, boredom, restlessness angst, doubt, we just turn on some device. Watch the latest Netflix special, whatever series you're into. I'm into Outlander right now. It's very engrossing. (laughs) I think it's a Netflix special or HBO or one of those. So we live in this land of um, this culture of entertainment. 
and endless filling of our time and our attention so we don't focus on things that really matter like life and death and waking up and liberation and justice and all of those things. We get absorbed into all kinds of things that may be not so meaningful at the end of the day when we're on our deathbed we probably won't be reflecting how well our team did in the Super Bowl. Maybe, but probably not. So if some of the time here on the retreat is not easy for you, know that you're not alone. One of the things that came up in one of the groups was this feeling or idea that's very pernicious that when we're struggling and having a hard time with ourselves, our mind, our heart, our body, our life, we think we're the only one. We look around the room and we scan for evidence that all the people are having a great time. <laughs> totally, you know, skipping through the daisies. They're meditating like Buddhas. And you just want them to move in the meditation. You want them to scratch. You want them to look a little less put together. <laughs> you, want them to, you want to know that you're not the only one who's struggling in some way. We all struggle in our, in our different ways. Body, mind, heart practice, as beautiful as it is here, and sometimes that struggle is even more painful because of the juxtaposition of the beauty of the beauty of the place that we're in. How can I still be carrying my burden of sorrow and whatever it is that we're carrying, what burden that we're carrying here? Wherever we go, there we are. Wherever we go, there our mind is and our story and our trauma and our loss and our fears and uh, self-doubt and uh, critic. Did anybody bring their critic along? <laughs> anybody lucky enough to leave them home? No, okay, they are. We're in a room full of critics. Okay. They do sneak into those suitcases. And the meditation cushions. So there's a line from the Buddha um, which is a very interesting frame for practice, he said, luminous is this mind, clear and brightly shining. Luminous is this mind, clear and brightly shining. Radiant and awake is this mind. Anybody feeling radiant and awake? Brightly shining? Times we taste that. Maybe we're meditating outside and there's that clarity and, and Receptiveness, and but he also said the second line, which is equally important. But this mind, this mind is um, that clarity of mind is obscured by visiting tendencies and habits of mind and heart. Luminous, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is obscured, covered over, hidden by these habits, tendencies of mind, which you are getting to look very closely at. Because when we're on a retreat in silence, in meditation, there's not a lot of escape, not a lot of distraction. So I want to spend some time looking at some of the ways that we struggle 
in our lives, which therefore in our practice and retreat, same, same. My favorite lines from Thich Nhat Hanh, he says, he's a Vietnamese Zen teacher, still with us, just. He says, um, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So this practice is a way of living well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. As in, Here's a bunch of practices, tools, techniques, signs along the way that help us navigate our inner and outer experience. And the choice is always up to us. Do we take them? Do we use them? Do we practice them? Do we put them to work or not? If we do, they tend to bear positive fruit if we don't practice them. They don't work so well. (laughs) You can have as many meditation apps on your phone as you like, (laughs) but if you don't actually use them, they don't work. (laughs) You can have a lot of subscriptions to Dharma magazines and all kinds of things. It doesn't work unless you practice. So that's the invitation. Every moment. What are we choosing? What are we inclining our mind and heart towards? What view and belief are we swimming in or strengthening? So in the retreat, we're cultivating, hopefully, mostly positive, healthy habits of mind and heart. Presence, awareness, kindness, openness, clarity, patience, connection with life, self, other. But we can also be practicing and strengthening a whole bunch of other stuff that's not so healthy and uh, happiness-inducing. And you know those too well. So there's a line, I often quote this, you'll probably know this from previous talks, and this line from the poet Hafez who says, You have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. But we do. We wake up in the morning, maybe we're a little tired, and you know, we come in here and someone's already meditating at five thirty and you think, I hate that person. (laughs) Coffee's not ready, so you're grumpy and you're complaining about the cooks and the food and the people and and you start judging yourself and not being the other person meditating in the hall and you're judging yourself for being crotchety and mix them and mix them and we end up feeling like crap. We do that all the time. We're uncognizant of a certain mental state and then we act it out, judging and crutching and doing all sorts of things, making ourselves miserable when we're not conscious. Even when we're conscious, sometimes we do that because it's a habit. Or we enjoy judging and comparing. <clears throat> and then at the end of the poem, he says, You also have the ingredients to turn your life into joy, your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. Right? So this is what we're doing. We're, we're, we're cultivating and mixing ingredients for our well being here. 
That's why generally when you leave a retreat, you feel fabulous. Because you've been cultivating beautiful, wholesome, skillful states of mind and heart. And letting go of that which is not so skillful. And the challenge, of course, is how do we live that? How do we integrate that? How do we live that in our lives, which are by necessity more complicated and... um, But that's the practice. We come to retreat to to deepen in that training and to taste the potential and possibility and the fruit of the practice that hopefully inspires us in our day-to-day lives when it's not so apparent at times. So the question really, for all of us, I think, in every moment with this practice, is how am I meeting this experience? How am I meeting this moment? How am I showing up for my knee pain, for my backache, for my sad heart, for my, mm, you know, who knows what, my grief, my losses, my irritation at my neighbor for breathing too loud, my lack of forgiveness for myself. How do I meet those moments? How do I show up? How do I show up on the retreat when I don't think it's being ran correctly? (laughs) How do I show up when I think we should be doing something different than what's on the schedule? How do I show up when the ants are crawling up my trouser leg? or biting my neck, or I'm awake at three in the morning because of the altitude and the insomnia. It's not easy being human. There's a lovely inquiry in the group today, one of the groups around vulnerability. And my understanding of being human is to be vulnerable. To be human is a vulnerable experience. To have a body and a heart and a consciousness and to be living in a transient, unstable, unreliable, insecure world is vulnerable. We are vulnerable by nature. How do we meet the vulnerability? Usually by defending, by hardening, by resisting. In all kinds of ways that we resist that vulnerability. And when we come to retreat, and when we come to the woods, and we come into community as a way that we can sometimes untether some of that hardening and guardedness and defendedness around the heart. And we can drop into the more vulnerable quality of our experience, which also is very sensitive and very open and very attuned. And when when we when we shed some of the guardedness and feel into that vulnerability and the softness and the tenderness of being human, we also uh, expose ourselves to a lot of beautiful qualities. When we're open and soft and tender and vulnerable, there's an intimacy with life. We feel a sense of commonality when we see someone suffering or when we see uh, someone spoke to a group of moth being eaten by ants, still alive. Or we walking out in the woods and we're just feeling a delicious intimacy with life and the, the beauty and the preciousness and the fragility and 
So that's what's available to us. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful practice that we do here. And I, you know, not a day goes by that I don't give thanks to having found this body of work and this body of practices that have helped me and I know helped countless other people navigate life. It doesn't make the difficult stuff go away, but it gives us some tools and skills how to work with it, how to work with our mind and our reactivity and, and offers uh, you know, doorways and practices to find a genuine sense of well-being, a genuine sense of ease, of self-care, of love, finding freedom in the midst of difficult experience. These things are available to us through some practice, some dedication. doesn't mean life is rosy. doesn't mean it gets better and better, because it doesn't. We get old, we get sick, and we die. That's that's the trajectory. It's not a pretty trajectory. (laughs) But... Uh, we develop these tools and practices to navigate and, and, and find find some ease or some kindness in the midst of that. No one's life is easy. However shiny it looks on the outside, however blessed on the outside it looks, it's not easy. Every day that we live is one day less on this planet. Every breath we take is one less breath. That is not an easy reality to live with. Those that we love nearest and dearest, at some point that relationship will end. This is not an easy place to be, to live with an open heart. I'm slightly digressing here, but that's just the nature of things. (laughs) So what I wanted to speak to tonight um, was the various obstacles and challenges, or some of them, there's many, I'm only going to touch on a few, that arise in the course of our experience, in the course of meditation, in the course of retreat life, and in life. And they're worth paying attention to because they are some of the ingredients that we choose, as Hafez was pointing to, and that we swim in, in a way that's not so healthy or helpful for us. So I'm just going to read a piece, one of my favorite Zen... um, Writings from uh, Jan Chosen Bays, who's a Zen teacher in Southern California. And she writes In this passing moment, all things come to be, and I vow to choose what is. And I'm saying, I'm reading this because this is really a metaphor for how we are meeting each moment, particularly the obstacles. She says, if there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. 
What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So, one of the primary tendencies of mind, something the Buddha spoke a lot about, and that we can see in our own day-to-day experience, and it certainly came up in the group today, what takes us away from simply abiding at ease in the moment, what, what the Buddha spoke to was sense desire, but really the longing for something other than what is here. Right? Longing, wanting for some experience. Right? I doubt if there's not one person here who wanted some kind of experience to happen on this retreat. You probably wouldn't have signed up if you didn't think there would be some positive experience, you know, joy or ease or beauty in the woods or something, right? And maybe that's happened already, maybe it hasn't. But this tendency of leaning, of wanting, of reaching, of grasping, of demanding, of longing, very, very powerful, as you know. It's really what drives behavior drives the will to live it drives most activity it drives the GDP with our consumption of stuff and shiny objects which this country is very good at producing but I want to speak to more the subtler dimensions of that because that's probably what was coming up in the group today the way that we subtly and not quite with this experience because we're leaning forward either to the next moment or because we're, 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 there's a deep longing for something more, something better, something bigger, something more blissful, something happier, something more radiant, something. Something. <laughs> I remember I was, as I was a young man, uh, hiking in Nepal, and I was in this market, this marketplace, and um, this guy was obviously a trader, but he wasn't at his stand. You know, saw me as a white gringo, and um, uh, saw it as an opportunity to sell. And yeah, I sort of caught him by surprise, and he said, "Something? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's something. Exactly what I want." <laughs> What is it? I'll take it. I'll take two of those. <laughs> so, um, you know, in meditation, it's the leaning into, you know, maybe we sit down and for grace of who knows what, it's quite calm and the mind's not restless and chatty and we're just quiet. But we're wanting it to be quieter. We're wanting it to be deeper. We're wanting it to be more calm, more spacious more expensive. Or we're um, just wanting a different mind. (laughs) Can I just (laughs) reboot, you know, (laughs) stick some software and take this one out and get a a more mellow one, less neurotic one? (laughs) Or we see someone sitting like the Buddha don't move, you know, it's hailstones and they're not moving. <laughs> can't move. 
you know, but it touches something, and it's because we because we can recognize as you know, like the statues of the Buddha, it, it speaks to something. There's a deeper longing in us of wanting whatever that's embodying, you know, stillness, calm, clarity, whatever we project onto that image. You know, we can feel it as as subtle as the neck, as a breath. You know, we're not quite with the in-breath because we're leaning forward into the out-breath. We're not quite with this step because we're actually anticipating the next step. We're not with this meditation because we're longing to be out there for the other meditation. As I was speaking to the group, and the, what the, the, the sort of fault in the programming is that we think if I want it and long for it and grasp and go from grab and chase it, it's going to come more easily. Right? Anybody had any success with that? <laughs> <laughs> Particularly the subtler, more the meditative, you know, heart, mind qualities. I want to be peaceful. Come on, peaceful. There actually is a great cartoon I share sometimes. There's a person meditating and, and she's saying, come on, peace of mind. Come on. Is that it? Is that peace of mind? God, I don't have all day. And we laugh, but you know, sometimes that's, that's us. Right? We're just desperate to have a moment of peace. Come on, Charles. No. And what are we cultivating? We're cultivating grasping, we're cultivating cling, we're cultivating longing. Right? And the whole thing is, is, is painful. Right? The longing for it, the, the not having it, the thinking if I just grab it, I would get it. The, the whole thing is just is suffering, beginning to end. Right? Which is why we need so much compassion. Because right? we all want many things, we all long for many things. And often, the, in particularly in the more subtler realms, the very longing and wanting and grasping is the very thing that precludes that from arising. Okay. So someone was speaking in the group about having you know, a very expansive, exalted state, which happens from time to time, arising out of conditions, and one of those conditions probably being an absence of grasping for that to allow it to arise in the first place. The danger with having those exalted experiences, which many of you, probably all of you, had some variety of, is we spend a lot of time trying to get back there. You know, Joseph Goldstein, who's a wonderful uh, elder in this lineage, talks about having this very radiant experience in Bodhgaya in India and, uh, and spent two years trying to get back to the state. Two years, that's a long time. And he's a serious meditator. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> and at some point, he goes like, let it go. It's gone. Something else might arise, something similar, something... But it's gone. It's dead, past, buried. Graveyard. So to notice this subtle leaning, notice the subtle grasping, or not so subtle grasping, because <laughs> sometimes it's not so subtle. <laughs> you know to feel the painfulness in the longing. However shiny the object or experience is we're longing for, including some awakened quality or experience of illumination and dissolution and emptiness, if we're grasping at it, all we're doing is cultivating grasping. 
doesn't matter whether we're grasping you know, an insight or an exalted state or chocolate toffee pudding. It's grasping. Grasping is grasping. So again, not to judge that, not to condemn it, but to feel the humanness of it. Because we're hardwired to orient to pleasant, towards things that we think will bring us happiness. And yet the very con- the very dynamic sets up a, a condition for dissatisfaction. Partly because the very thing that we're longing for doesn't last very long. Think about the best experience you've ever had in your life. It's gone. There may have be some memory and some residue influencing you in some way, but it's gone. So think about how much of your life we, we spend in this treadmill, this, this hamster wheel of try, reaching for something other than what's here. And being at Vaisitos is a wonderful place to see this. Right? Maybe you want to get to the top of Refugee Ridge because it's really cool and it's a great view. And, and I know this very much from my own hiking experience, which I do a lot. As soon as I set out with a, oh, I've got to get to the top of that ridge, the hike is ruined for me. Because I've locked in a kind of grasping mind state. And everything else, including the, the daisies and the, the beaver and whatever else on the way, is not as in- important as getting to the top. You just plant that metaphor for anything else that you're chasing in life and how much we miss along the way. Again, not to judge ourselves, I really want to emphasize it's really easy with these teachings. You know, these teachings are ideal, they're idealistic teachings. They're pointing to the possibility of human experience. And we fall short all the time. And the point isn't to judge ourselves for falling short. The, the point is to see the painfulness of the ways that we do things that you know, interrupt our own well-being to feel the pain, to feel the compassion, and to understand, to see clearly with mindfulness, wisdom, sati sampajanya, so we can actually course correct. As well as Yogi Berra once said, if you don't change direction, you keep going in the same direction. (laughs) So you want to ask yourself, what direction am I going in? What are the habits of mind that I'm swimming in? This beautiful line from Padmasambhava, who was one of the founders of Buddhism in Tibet, he said, if you want to understand your past, look to your present experience. If you want to understand your past, your past actions, look to the present experience because you're experiencing the fruit of all the things you've thought and practiced and done in the past. If you're a judgmental nitpicky person in the moment, well, understand, you want to understand your past, you look at that's how that's happening now. If you're a generous and appreciative person now, you can look because you've been cultivating that beautiful quality. He said, if you want to understand the future, look to your present actions. If you want to understand your future, look to your present actions. What actions, how am I living now that's planting seeds that will continue to grow and strengthen and ripen tomorrow, next day, next day, whenever? 
So in, in that way, the practice is very um, challenging because it means you know, that we pay attention to everything that we do because has everything has an has a, has a impact, has a consequence. Not to be tied or anxious, but just to know that, you know, as the Buddha said, whatever we frequently, whatever the, we, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind and heart. So what are we inclining towards? Are we inclining towards self-judgment and self-hatred? Or are we inclining towards self-forgiveness and self-kindness? Every moment, there's a choice point, a seeming choice point. So there's the tendency of grasping for pleasant experience. And then there's the holding on, the getting fixated on pleasant experience. So we, we have that rare moment of delight or bliss or openness in the meditation. Oh, great. Okay, don't move. God, why did it go so quickly? Well... I guess I'll spend the rest of the retreat trying to get back there. That's why there's so much emphasis in these teachings on letting go. Can we appreciate whatever arises, beautiful, delightful, easeful, graceful, and know that it has a lifespan and it's going to pass. However beautiful the quality in meditation, however delicious the experience of oneness in nature, like all things, it comes and goes. Can we be at ease with the coming and the going? Or not? So, and then the second primary uh, movement tendency that obscures that cloudy and radiance of mind, that well-being is a similar contention with experience, contention with reality. But in this case, it's oriented towards the unpleasant. The reason I spoke this morning about paying attention to this pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone is that's what drives our experience. If it's pleasant, we want it. We want it to stay. If it's unpleasant, we, we, we don't like it. We want to get rid of it. And nature is a great practice, place to practice with these changing circumstances. Right? Like I love our morning meditation. We start off, it's sere- I think it's serene, it's exquisite, that first morning meditation. And it's just delightful, the air and the light and the sounds, and it's just, for me, it's heaven. Right? And then the shade moves and the sun comes out and then we start baking. It's not so pleasant begin not to like it as much. And then I hear the rumbling thunder. (laughs) And I have a little bit of fear of lightning, mostly generated from being at the ranch and seeing so much of it. Um, And also care about your welfare. And as I hear the rumbling, I go, there goes the morning. (laughs) Here comes the hail. That's the nature of experience. How do we meet that? Does our mind state contract because we're not getting what we want, because we're not liking what's happening, because it's un- 
because we're deeming it or experiencing it as unpleasant because it's cold or it's wet or it's windy or it's hot or something buggy. You know, the, one of the main practices that arise in nature practice is is um, working with adversity. Right? However beautiful and lovely the natural world is, it's also very harsh and unforgiving and uncompromising. It doesn't care a damn about whether you're hot or cold, or whether you like the wind or not, <laughs> or storms or whatever. It is what it is. What is our relationship to that when, when things change, when it's not what we like, when the, when the ants are biting our ankles? Maybe one of these mornings we should just sit in the rain. Bring your rain gear tomorrow. <laughs> I might do that. It's great. It's great. You know, I, I, I used to leave these kayaking retreats in Alaska. It rains every day. Like, if you didn't practice in the rain, you wouldn't practice. <laughs> you sit there with your plastic stuff on and your wellies and the pitter patter, pitter patter, pitter patter. Cold, damp. And it's trickling down inside, you know, and it gets in under your eyes, you know, you get into your tent and the bag's all damp and it's cold. You get to work with your mind. I remember I was doing a backpack retreat in Arizona on this beautiful trail on the Rainbow Bridge Trail and woke up one morning and it's covered in snow everywhere and the tent's kind of Bowing way down with snow. I mean, I, my association with desert was, was hot, and that was not the case. So the greenness, the invitation, constantly. How do we? How do we show up? How do we meet that? And of course, naturally, our, our physical organism, you know, the, the instinctual response when it's unpleasant is contraction, withdraw. Right? If it's cold, if it's threatening. You know, we, we we recoil, you know, like 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 a unit, you know, one-celled organism will recoil from threat, from, from you know, perceived, uh, you know, unwanted conditions. We have that cellular response when it's when we when, when we're in physical pain, we contract. When it's cold, we pull back. Okay? Or we have the contra response, which is we actually either withdraw, or we get angry. We want to strike out and kill the ant or the bug or you know, shout at the sky or whoever it is that we feel like is causing us to feel discomfort. Me. <laughs> Why is he making us sit here? And <laughs> it's all his fault. <laughs> it's all right. That's okay. You can, you can do that. <laughs> I don't take it personally. <laughs> Um, so again, to bring awareness, so these hindrances, these obstacles, none of them are a problem in themselves. They're just the next thing to be aware of. One minute we're with the breath, with sounds. Next minute we're with longing for that sound to continue, or we're in contraction and fear because of the cold or the sound of the thunder. Just the next thing, the next unfolding part of experience. Can I be present for it? 
Can I notice my response to it? Liking, not liking, hating, loving, demanding, rejecting. Or can I find some middle way in between that is, that is at ease in the midst of experience? That's not reactive, that's not pushing and pulling, that's actually free regardless of whatever's happening. And we know this in our experience. You've tasted this many, many times. Plenty of times you're not getting your way, not getting what you want. And there's some capacity to let go, some capacity to surrender, some capacity to yield. It's sometimes easier when it's bigger circumstances like weather, but sometimes when our partner's being very difficult or annoying or just doing the things that they know bug us. And we breathe and we go, there they go again. That's what they do. And we let go. We, we, we have that capacity. And there are many times that we don't, which is why we practice. This is why this practice is called practice. I'm going to read something from Suzuki Roshi, great Zen teacher. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you're tearing your hair out and racing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So we all have those times where we're up against the wall, literally, metaphorically. And we have to dig quite deep into our practice into our wisdom, to our compassion. So next time, actually I want to read something from the Sagadada, who's a wonderful Advaita Vedanta teacher. India. So the next time, which won't be very long, that you're experiencing something unpleasant, like this talk going on too long or something, um, see it as a mindfulness spell. See it as an opportunity. Oh, this is interesting. This is what the teachings are pointing to. This is unpleasant. Do I need to suffer in relationship to it? Can I find a sense of ease in the midst of it? This is in the Sagadatu. He says, The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, we find it pleasant. If it's not acceptable, we experience it as painful. However, you will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern, with its desires and feels, fears, enables you to return to your real nature, the source of happiness and peace. 
Right? So the very peace and happiness we're looking for and longing for is always available. It's not in some future experience. It's in this moment's capacity to relate wisely and kindly to what is. Because that's all we have. All we have is this moment. <coughs> so the next time something unpleasant arises, see it as a mindfulness spell. Oh, great. Here's something unpleasant. Won't be your first thought, probably. But it could be your second. <laughs> oh, there's that backache. Oh, I know that really well. My SI is, is inflamed again. Oh, hello, old friend. Can I relax around it? Can I not see it as the enemy to my well-being and, and happiness on retreat? That's my particular thing, SI joint. But whatever yours is, whatever you know, there's many people here with pain and chronic pain and injuries and, or with heart pain and, or life pain or being a parent and having the, 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 ch- the challenge of worrying about your kids or whatever it is. So the good news is all this is possible. Like we know this, we can do this. We do this, we, we do this all the time. And what these teachings are pointing to is, you know, is the roadmap and the encouragement to um, to really turn towards experience, turn towards the difficult. Realize you have greater capacity than you think you do. Let the ant crawl all over you, and maybe you can see it coming to tickle you, or you let the mosquito land on your cheek. And you feel its proboscis pro, <laughs> and you feel the stinging, and then you feel it lighten and leave, and you wish it may you be well. You don't have to do that, but it's fun to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you're in. I wish I had my book here. And there's a story in my nature book, Awake in the Wild, where a good friend of mine's meditating, standing in the forest, and she's feeling this sensation on her face, like, like many legs walking back and forth between her eyelash and her lip. And she said, she's a really good meditator, she just stays, lies closed, just feeling, and, and about ten minutes goes by and the curiosity gets the better of her, and, and she realizes she can't open her eye because the spider has tied a cobweb from her eyelash <laughs> to the corner of her mouth. And then she has this lovely phrase, that I wish I could remember exactly, but she says, you know, how I felt so honored to be considered a worthy place in nature to make a home for the spider. <laughs> and, then, and then she realized that when she, you know, fully opened her eyes and, and moved her face, she would destroy the spider's home. And, and she said something about what intimacy, delicacy, and destruction, a single spider thread. Yeah. That, that, you know, that you know, profundity of experience arose because she was able to tolerate the unpleasantness and the unpleasantness of not knowing. Right? Again, I'm not saying that you you know become a spider web you know <laughs> face you know, but you know play with your edge a little. You know, if it's raining and you're sitting outside, let it rain. You know, are you a little cold? Okay, you can deal with cold. Or maybe your edge is sitting in the dark. You know, at night. You know, all the creepy crawlies out there. So sit on the porch and just stretch a little. You know? I mean, you don't even have to stretch a little. There's plenty of unpleasantness. 
You know, when you wake in the night and you hear the crackling around your tent and you're convinced it's the Yeti. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. Oh, fear, fear. Oh, may I be at ease. May I love myself in the distress. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. So, so many other obstacles I haven't gotten to yet. Um, I'll mention some tomorrow, the energetic challenges of dullness and sleepiness and restlessness, which some people spoke to today. And the other main hindrance that the, certainly the Buddha spoke to that we experience a lot is, is the, the doubting mind. The, when I think I refer to as the critic, and I know as, I meant, as we saw the critic is here alive and well, um, I'll speak more about that at some point. So lastly, just to wrap up here, and I've gone on here, um, with the, 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 the challenges that arise in meditation, one thing that's really instructive to pay attention to is what caused them to arise and what causes them to cease. Right? So when you're gripped in that longing, grasping mind, see if you can trace back, what was it that triggered that longing for a vacation in Rome when I was sitting here <laughs> listening to the birds. Right? Some train of association that caused that grip of, you know, there's a rumble in the belly, there's thinking of lunch, and there was a desire for pizza, and oh, the best pizza I had was Rome, let's go back to Rome for a holiday. Whoa, wait a minute, meditating by Sito's, breathing in, breathing out. <laughs> and then also very importantly, to know the presence or absence of these, these obstacles in the mind. Right? So we're very fixated as a species to, you know, we look at the, for example, you look out the window, you look at the objects, not the space in which the objects are residing in. Right? In the same way with the obstacles of mind, we're very fixated on the problems of our mind and body and life, not the absence of them. Right? So notice those times when you're sitting or walking or lying in your bed or wherever you are, and there's an absence of longing, of wanting anything. There's an absence of resisting and fighting anything. There's an absence of being distracted and deluded. And you're just simply happily resting at ease. Really give attention to those moments, because they're as instructive as the obstacle. Because they're they're illustrative of the, the capacity of the mind to be free from these tendencies. You know, and as, as coming back to full circle to what I started with at the beginning when the Buddha spoke about luminous, this, luminous is this mind brightly shining. Clear and radiant is this mind brightly shining. Right? We have that potential when there's an absence of these habits and tendencies And we all have many moments where those tendencies are absent. Learn to recognize those. Because when we recognize them, we actually establish ourselves, at least for some moments, in the recognition and in the experience. Oh, look at that. In this moment, maybe right now, if you look to your mind right now, is there the presence or absence of wanting something other than what's happening? Is there the presence or absence of resisting what's here? Is there a presence or absence of uh, distraction and delusion? 
And I would say out in nature, the, again, it's conducive to the to the releasing of those 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 difficult habits. And again, not to make a problem out of those. We just we want to get to understand the, the tendencies and habits of mind, particularly the ones that cause us distress. Okay, let's just sit for a couple of moments just to let those words settle in and dissolve back into silence. So as we sit in silence, noticing the presence or absence of wanting, the presence or absence of resistance or anger, and the presence or absence of delusion or distraction. And if there's an absence of those things, let yourself really taste and know that, at least for a moment. And if there's a presence of one of those things, can you hold that in awareness with a kind, curious attention? Mm. 